Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Good morning, Vermont, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm Brad Wright. First up, we're going to discuss a complicated problem involving animals. There's legislation being discussed in the House that could create a new part of the Department of Public Safety to deal with the growing problem of animal cruelty. I hate to think about that happening in Vermont, but it does. This has been an issue at some level for as long as I can remember. The question is what to do, how to do it, and what will it cost? Speaking of state finances, we will have a conversation about the state of Vermont's economy with the state economist, Tom Cavett. We're hearing good news about state revenue. question is, will it last? We uh, recently had a woman dying of cancer come from out of state to take advantage of Vermont's medical aid in dying law. That is because so many other states don't have such a law. We will speak with an organization that is trying to help change the law and attitudes in other states, like neighboring New Hampshire. And finally, we chat with one of Vermont's human treasures, Thea Lewis, an author of Crime and Ghost Stories, and someone who leads the ghost tours into those areas of mystery and imagination. So thank you all for joining us today. Um, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines empathy as the action of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experience of another. In this context, we are talking about animals today, the ones that are mistreated, neglected, or actually treated with deliberate cruelty. Leaving a dog chained up outside overnight in the winter, in most cases, that feels like cruelty to me. Uh, starvation of animals. Uh, but there is no central place to report on um, or address this kind of issue. Some towns have animal control officers, some don't. So now there is being, there is a bill being considered in the legislature that would create a division of the public safety department where mistreatment of animals can be reported and someone can do something about it. Joining us to discuss this is State Representative Catherine Sims of Orleans County and Jay Waters Evans of Chittenden County. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for having us. Um, so I guess my first question uh, for uh, Representative Sims, uh, I guess, is how did we get here? Uh, it seems like the Vermont legislature for a very long time is full of people, has been full of people, who would not want to see any mistreatment of animals. Um, how did we get here? Yeah, thanks for the question. So I, I think you're right. The General Assembly is very interested and committed to animal welfare, and has been for many years. And this has been an ongoing topic. What feels different about this moment is that we've had the time, the space, the reports to help guide the legislation that we're putting forward so that finally um, there's some consensus about how we can take action this session to address what is a big and complicated challenge but find a way forward to make sure that we um, have adequate, adequate oversight and care for animals um, here in our state. 
Yeah, I mean, it see, just feels like everybody's, you know, if they see a problem with an animal, they, they, you know, they call the town. But some towns can't do anything about it. They don't have the people, right? Yeah, so what we've learned is that right now we have a pretty fragmented system that is overwhelmed with demand. And this bill makes recommendations about how we can move forward to create a unified system and structure to support these cases. I come to this issue hearing from the local control, um, local animal control officers in my district saying that they really lack the resources that they need to be to handle the cases um, in our community. So they're receiving calls or folks are um, voluntarily uh, giving over animals, but then that individual doesn't have one place to turn to provide the shelter and care for that animal um, and or investigate um, uh, um, incidences of um, animal welfare within the community. So the system is fragmented, it's disjointed, there's no one place to turn, and this bill seeks to address that. Uh, Representative Che Waters-Evans of Chittenden County, can you are there specific examples of of animal mistreatment that you can cite that that got under your skin? Sure. Well, unfortunately, one of them was in Charlotte. That's where I live. It's the uh, one of the towns I represent. We there was an issue last year with some goats, uh, some baby goats that were um, suffering, and uh, a neighbor witnessed it and called the. I believe the animal control officer, the municipal animal control officer in our town. And then they said, oh, maybe call the state police because we can't really handle that. They're goats. And they said, call the agency of agriculture. And then they said, maybe fish and wildlife. And then all of a sudden, and it's not passing the buck because nobody wants to do the work or nobody cares. It's just there are, I think, probably at this point, 14 different agencies or departments or positions that could possibly handle an animal welfare case. And it just, you know, it was frustrating for, um, you know, this woman who lived in Charlotte who saw these goats suffering and and I, there was nowhere for her to go. And it was, um, you know, coincidentally, it was just after they had published this report from the Department of Public Safety kind of highlighting that those were some issues that needed to be addressed. It was people got really upset. It was it was um, heartbreaking to see and and difficult, not only on a personal level and you know feeling compassion for the animals, but also a public safety and a public health issue too. So there's this demand for something to be done. How often are we seeing you know uh, these acts of neglect or or cruelty? So the the calls with complaints. Um, and, you know, we discussed this last week somewhat with Legislative Council when we were going over the bill. They go to different agencies, which is part of the problem. It's hard to know. I don't think anyone's keeping track within each agency or department of how many calls they're getting. Um, I think that I, – I think a lot of calls, um, to my understanding, are people who are concerned about animals, and then they're just kind of dismissed because they say, no, it's okay for – a horse to be outside as long as it has, you know, a, a, a structure with three sides to protect it from the wind or, you know, if there's some kind of farm animals that want to be outside. Um, one example that was used for these, uh, um, those Scottish cows, you know, those big furry cows. Um, yeah. And so those animals are okay. So there is definitely a lot of that, but I, I'm not sure. I can't, I can't answer your question yeah. completely, but yeah. um, it's, 
it's been a problem, I guess, for two decades we've been working on this. Hmm. For, really? You've been working on it for 20 years? Wow. Um, yeah. Folks, uh, so listeners, uh, if you have a question about what needs to be done to address the issue of animal neglect or, or cruelty, uh, please give us a call and ask a question. 802-244-1777 is the number to call. 802-244-1777 to ask a question of uh, State Representative Catherine Sims of Orleans County or Jay Waters Evans of Chittenden County. Um, it seems like with a state as small as Vermont that some statewide nonprofit could have done something like this kind of work, or am I wrong about that? Uh, is it just is it just too too fragmented to to pull everything together? I think part of the problem is that first of all, it's a small state population wise. Geographically, a lot of these situations take place in rural areas where they don't have the infrastructure or the finances to support, you know, these things. There are some nonprofits that deal, um, I believe, um, our other co-sponsor, Rep. Uh, Mike Rice, unfortunately he's not here to talk with us, but he um, specifically dealt with some cases that um, were relating to some horses that were being mistreated. Um, I think there's, yes. So the answer is yes, there are nonprofits who can deal with this, but it's quite expensive to care for, you know, a, a number of, of animals, especially a horse or, or some larger farm animals, um, and they just don't have the resources to do so. And towns don't have the resources to do so or anywhere to maybe put an animal that needs to be sheltered somewhere. Yeah. And, and maybe I would also just jump in to add sure. um, another piece of this bill that I think is really important is we put the Division of Animal Welfare within the Department of Public Safety. And that's because they're the agency that has um, the criminal enforcement um, authority around animal welfare laws. So in some of these cases, the challenges are around finding a place to care and shelter for animals and really grateful for the animal um, uh, shelter community who takes on a lot of that work. But in some cases, there's an investigation component and criminal enforcement. And I think that's really an important um, public safety and you know government role. Yeah, yeah. You can kind of see how um, uh, in order to uh, make sure that the law is enforced, that there has to be some stick, uh, not just carrot, I guess, in that case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I need to, I guess I need to ask you, you know, it may be early in the process, but but what do you think your chances of getting passage this session are? Um, well, I am hopeful. Um, it depends, I think, and uh, Representative Sims maybe has more of an idea. She's been around a little longer than I have. I'm just still in my first term. Um, I think it's encouraging that um, our colleagues are interested in it, that we were able to discuss it um, in the House Government Operations Military Affairs Committee and, and be able to really delve into it you know, on a deeper level than just a cursory introduction of the bill, but you never know. I don't know. Uh, Representative Sims, what do you think? Yeah, I'd add, um, you know, I think think we've heard interest in – from both the House Government Operations Committee as well as the Senate GovOps Committee. We worked with some senators as we were drafting the bill. And that the bill itself is really the result of a collaboration across um, numerous stakeholders, including the Humane Societies. We 
spoke with the state vet, a number of our agencies, the Vermont Traditions Coalition. So we have brought a lot of folks to the table to help develop this bill and build support for it. And, um, you know, excited to see the committees take it up. And, and we're hopeful that we can get it across the finish line. We know that this is a topic that has come up um, in many sessions in the past, and hopefully this will be the year. Do you have any sense of what it might cost? So um, we're, you know, beginning to get those numbers now. The bill contemplates um, establishing a director of the animal of um, the Division of Animal Welfare. So that um, would be an additional expense. And we are looking at um, licensing fees um, to help uh, fund that position. That, And that said, I, I think our hope is that um, by developing this unified, consistent approach, we can build some more efficiencies into the system that ultimately help um, provide cost savings um, to our local towns and the state overall as a result of this work. Well, I was going to ask, uh, you know, what happens to municipal animal control officers um, if we have a, a, a state agency um, handling the same job? Yeah, so I think those positions are still um, really essential. They're the kind of boots on the ground, the person in community who can field um, concerns, questions, um, inquiries, and, and even take you know the, the surrender of animals. But that with this new position, they would actually have a statewide agency, one door to turn to to help address whatever the um, demands are that come up on the ground. So still really critical, but hopefully – uh, those local animal control officers will be better resourced and supported as a result of, of this effort. Okay. So, but at this point, you're not uh, um, ready to, to uh, give us any numbers? Um, so, again, that, that's something that normally happens as a part of the bill process. The Joint Fiscal Office um, develops estimates, and, um, you know, that will happen once we have uh, better clarity about what a more final version of the bill will look like and, and how we'll raise revenue to support that work. Okay. Um, if you'd like to ask a question of either of our state reps here uh, to talk about the animal cruelty bill, 802-244-1777 is the number to call if you'd like to ask a question. Um, have you heard uh, anything from the governor's office about this? So we did work with the Agency of Agriculture, Food, and Markets, as well as um, the Department of Fish and Wildlife and um, the Department of Public Safety as we were drafting this bill. And I think there's common agreement that there are challenges within the system and that um, there's work to be done to ensure an efficient, coordinated system. You know, the the details of the structure of this bill is still something that we're um, discussing with them on that. And, and um, But most importantly, I think there's a common agreement that there's a challenge here that needs yeah. to be addressed. Um, when it comes to the law itself, uh, how will animal cruelty or neglect um, actually be defined? So what the bill does is it establishes the division, and then the director um, is responsible for um, developing and then implementing um, the system for um, investigating and enforcing our animal welfare requirements. But I'll, I'll let uh, Rep. Waters Evans answer that in more detail as well. Yeah, I was just going to say there already exists in statute animal cruelty laws. This isn't changing those in any way. It's just streamlining the system um, and making sure that everybody across the board from people who are reporting something in their town 
to, you know, the director of animal welfare that, and everyone in between knows who's responsible for what and when they're responsible for it. Um, so it, it doesn't change any of the penalties for animal cruelty or anything like that. It just, um, it, it just changes the system. Okay. Does, uh, I'm, I'm curious what the, what the existing law is. I mean, do, does a, does a dog have to be, you know, left out at, 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 at you know, chained outside, uh, in zero degrees overnight? Um, uh, or does that, does that qualify or, or is there, I, I guess, I guess my question is how does it, how does it work and how, how do you know whether, you know, what, what defines, uh, cruelty or neglect? So I I am not sure actually because I've heard from a couple people who are asking if we could write into the law or, or create a law somehow about chaining dogs overnight. Um, I there are uh, many you know rules already. I think as far as a dog was concerned or something like that, like a dog being left overnight in uh, cold temperatures, that would now and still you know even probably within the scope of this bill fall to the local animal control officer. They can issue citations. There's a process for them to, um, you know, take the animal from its owner if it's not being treated properly. Those already exist, those uh, uh, statues in that system. Okay. And, and how different is it for, um, uh, for animals that are, are more connected to agriculture, like, like goats or, or, um, or other livestock? So those cases fall you know, it really depends. It, it falls, I guess, ultimately at this moment to the agency of agriculture. Um, but as we found with this case in Charlotte last year, that it's really difficult to find, you know, a lot of these departments are understaffed. There are, it's a triage system. So maybe there are other things going on that are more important. You know, the state police can't come out there. They have a million other things that they're dealing with right now. And so I think often it just kind of falls to the wayside and not much is done. I'm not, I'm not even sure what happened in the case in Charlotte, what the ultimate kind of penalty was. I think people's initial concerns are about, you know, helping these animals in the short term and helping them, you know, within days. And I think that often comes either to, you know, public pressure or, or police or municipalities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not hard to imagine that someone's finances dictate how well they care for, you know, a number of animals. Um, if if people have animals and can't afford to feed them but feel like they're part of the family and don't want to part with them, um, what do you do? I mean, it's just it, it just seems like there's there's um, you know figuring out and, and understanding where where the various dividing lines are. Um, Feels like a like a hard problem to solve, and and might uh, might uh, come down to the judgment of an individual who is looking at the situation, you know, for the first time. Yeah, I, I, Vermonters I, I are passionate about animals, whether it's you know their farm animals, animals or pets, or the deer living in their backyard. Everyone is, um, you know, it's just we have a culture here. I think of caring for animals, and. My understanding or perception of the situation is not that people are just, you know, being cruel to animals because, you know, they're having a good time doing that. I think that you're spot on when you say it's probably a financial issue a lot of the time. I think there are lots of animal rescues and local nonprofits and um, 
you know, animal sanctuaries and stuff in the state. And those, that's a good place for people to reach out if they're struggling with that. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to make that call, but I think it's a safety issue ultimately, yeah. you know, for, for the owners, for the animals, for the neighbors, you know, for everybody involved. Right. Um, we do have one caller coming in. Um, uh, Andy uh, from Duxbury has a question. Uh, Andy, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Well, I'm not so sure it's so much of a question. Um, I happen to be Duxbury's animal control officer, and I can tell you for the last four or five years, I am so extremely frustrated with our system. Um, I have had to deal with multiple neglect and cruelty cases, have tried through the state, through every avenue there is, and there is nothing. There is no follow-up, no way to, you know. I also worked, believe it or not, in the legislation and on the animal cruelty bill um, back that was passed back in 2018, um, and those are the guidelines. They're, they're minimum standards. They're not ideal, but they're minimum standards um, that was supposed to help people like me, animal control officers, um, be able to take care of cruelty cases. Sadly, there is no bite to that law. It is on the books. Um, so I am very, very hopeful that this does go somewhere. It's way past time. Um, okay. A and Andy? Just on another note, the Green Mountain Dog Club gives money to um, the food bank. I believe it's in Waitsfield for dog food. So if there's people who are having trouble feeding their pets, there is dog food available. Wow. Thank you, Andy. Um, uh uh, representatives, we just have about uh, 30 seconds or so left. Yeah, I mean, thanks for that call. I think that's a sentiment that we hear all across the state, and, you know, that really nothing short of a statewide centralized system um, is needed at this moment to help, um, you know, ensure that we have adequate response across the state. And so uh, looking forward to working with folks to, to get this work done this year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, listen, uh, Representative uh, Che Waters Evans of Chittenden County and uh, Representative Catherine Sims of Orleans County, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we do have um, uh, we we hope that something happens here, uh, and and we do very much appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you so much for for listening to our. Our plea for animal welfare care. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you again. Uh, we will be right back after this short break. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm Brad Wright. Very recently, the state's two top economists painted a relatively rosy picture of Vermont's revenue forecast, which is based on trends that they are seeing and analyzing with an eye toward what might happen in the future. A year ago, we were all wondering what would happen with the widely expected economic downturn. But it hasn't happened, at least not yet. We are now joined by Tom Cavett, the state economist and principal economic advisor to the Vermont legislature. He is also president of the firm Cavett, Rockler and Associates in Townsend, Vermont. Tom, welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Brad. Good to be here. 
Um, according to your report to the legislature, much has changed since your July 2023 revenue forecast. Um, can you explain what happened? Well, actually, uh, Brad, not a lot has changed. Uh, it was uh, we, we do these revenue forecasts twice a year, and we look at what's happening in the broader economy and then relate all of the myriad things that are occurring in, in, in the global and national economy and, and, and how that affects the state economy, and then uh, filter that down to how that affects hundreds of different revenue categories and sources of revenue the state depends on. And so uh, we last did this in July and forecast a pronounced slowing of the economy, not a recession, but a pronounced slowing uh, uh, an actual decline in the general fund, which is the largest single uh, fund that the state relies on. And uh, uh, this course correction in January took a forecast of a decline of 5.5% in the general fund and adjusted it to minus 4.2%. So we're still dealing with a slowdown we're still dealing with uh, a decline in overall revenue. Uh, it's it's not a recession, but it is definitely a downshifting. That said, the economy did a little bit better in the last six months than expected, and so too did revenues, but by a very small amount, uh, about a percent and a half variance with what we expected. So uh, this, this is an adjustment, a true-up, but it doesn't change – the broader story, and uh, it's it's good news. It's better to have a little bit more than have a little bit less or a lot less, but uh, it's not a radical change in in the outlook. Okay, um, the <coughs> excuse me. Um, the first bullet point in your report uh, really caught my eye, and it says in part, despite widespread pessimism about the state of the economy, GDP growth has been stellar. Unemployment is close to record lows and for a near record number of consecutive months, all while inflation has been receding. The next 12 to 18 months, however, will be a period of maximum stress as the lagged effects of the steep monetary tightening hit the economy and accrued savings from the pandemic continue to dwindle. So you're expecting the lag to hit and perhaps state legislators who are making big plans may wish to take note. Uh, yeah, that's that's very much the story. Um, it, it's always difficult politically to uh, deal with revenues that are shrinking instead of growing. And so, uh, you know, when there's a lot more revenue, you can do more of what you want to do that involves spending, or you can lower taxes. And both of those are things that politicians in, like to do. That, that, that's... That's easy to do. When revenues are declining, uh, and this is not just one year of forecast uh, of, of, of either declines or slow growth, depending on what fund you're looking at, it's, it's two years, really, two fiscal years of, of, very, of either declines or very sluggish growth. And so that's a challenging environment within which to be making political decisions and that is the message to the legislature and, and what they're contending with uh, and the administration and governor as well. Hmm. Um, yeah, uh, it, 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 um, it does. Um, I just wonder, um, 
uh, you know, there are plans out there for some fairly hefty expansions. Um, the bo- both both houses of the legislature, you know, can can override a governor's veto is should Governor Scott choose to um, veto, uh, you know, big expansions, big expensive expansions of government. Now, that's actually not your not your bailiwick, obviously. But um, but it does seem like um, uh, you wonder if they're hearing the message um, or is it. You know, or, or are they just addressing you know needs that they that, that they think are are necessary? Um, there was an, this important piece. Um, although our baseline forecast still does not assume a recession will occur during this period, the economy will slow substantially, as you've pointed out, along with state revenues. The soft landing runway may be in sight, but sticking the landing still carries considerable downside risks and will require both skill and luck to achieve. Can you talk about what the downside risks are? Uh, yeah, just just first of all, a word on the soft landing. You know, this is a term that's used to describe uh, uh, an intentional slowing of the economy by the Federal Reserve. Uh, in order to slow uh, inflation. So to bring inflation back down to their target levels, they're purposely slowing the economy by raising interest rates. And that affects the economy primarily through conduits that are uh, sectors of the economy that are credit sensitive. And we've seen already some of the effects of that. But offsetting that in this round is an unprecedented amount of uh, uh, federal monies, mostly uh, from pandemic spending and subsequent infrastructure spending that uh, uh, blunt the effects of those interest rate increases. But over time, those, those you know, do, do slow the economy. So the idea is that you would have a landing, a slowdown that's, that's gentle, that doesn't push the economy into recession instead of a crash. And that's called a soft landing. But understand that anytime you're flying in a plane, to extend the analogy, and you have to, have to make a forced landing, that's not a good thing. That's not part of the flight plan generally. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there, a soft landing is, is rare. Uh, that's it, usually missing the runway a little bit is what leads to uh, recession after recession, if you go back in history. And, uh, you know, so, so we're at a critical point. The economy's fragile because, uh, you know, the brakes are being put on. But we also have a lot of uh, spend, spending capacity still, uh, both in the private sector and in government. And there are some charts in that report that show uh, cash balances for the state of Vermont are at record high levels above $2 billion. And a lot of that money has to be spent down uh, uh, per the federal requirements when it was accepted. And at the national level, there's talk about clawing back some of the pandemic money. But uh, you know, $2 billion for a little state like Vermont, if you look and, at, at the amplification of that through all the states in, in, in the nation, there's still a lot of spending capacity that, uh, 
uh, that is there, and and on the private side too. If you look at household balance sheets and uh, businesses as well, so it's it's impacting some sectors. Uh, the longer that they stay up, where refinancing has to occur, there's a lot of stress in commercial real estate, for example, because of that. But uh, it 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 will be it will be biting. So the economy is 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 more fragile because of that, and any exogenous shock. Uh, you know, war in the Middle East expanding, things like that, uh, could could knock the the economy awry. Uh, we do have uh, a, a question from a listener. Uh, Forbes from Corinth uh, is on the line. What is your question for Tom Cavett? Hi. Um, this is on the revenue side. I um, drive a conventional vehicle. I don't have enough resources to buy an EV electric vehicle. When I um, fuel up at the pump, I pay both state and federal roads and bridge tax. I'd like to know what, uh, we've had plenty of time to look at that. I'd like to know what solid plan is in place to be able to address that when it comes down to EV vehicles not paying that roads and bridge tax. Thanks, Forbes. Uh, Tom, what do you think? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And uh, the transportation fund stands out as being uh, the area of weakest growth lo- long term. Uh, there have been a bunch of fee increases that go into effect uh, in the uh, second half of this fiscal year. So that's trying to uh, offset that with, with, with more funds. But gasoline and fuel taxes are a big part of the transportation fund. And electric vehicles uh, aren't paying those. So there's been discussion in various legislative trans- transportation committees about uh, uh, ways to get around that. At the same time, uh, they're trying to encourage uh, uh, greater adoption of electrical ve- uh, electric vehicles for uh, climate purposes. But uh, that that is a real challenge. Um, I'm not uh, involved unless asked on you know, policy recommendations for dealing with that. But that is a that is a big challenge. I know it's being discussed actively and has been for a number of years. Uh, uh, there are discussions not just in Vermont but in other states as well about having uh, uh, taxes on the number of miles driven rather than uh, gasoline consumption, uh, a lot of things like that that uh, uh, could be considered. Yeah, um, that, I was going to say that seems to be about the only remedy that I've heard of so far is um, is taxing the number of miles driven and and um, how you calculate that uh, seems like it would be a um, kind of a challenge. Um, I, I noted uh, in your report, Tom, that the um, tax revenues from car sales are not uh, what they have been typically. Um, and that sounds like it's pandemic related. Uh, in 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 part, it's pandemic related, and in part, it's uh, related to interest rates. So, eighty percent of new cars are are bought with financing, and forty percent of used cars. We're looking at new car interest rates that are north of seven eight percent, depending on uh, credit worthiness and and used car financing rates in the. 10 to 12 percent plus uh, rates. Uh, uh, that definitely dents sales, and uh, 
uh, I saw a stat the other day that said uh, nearly 18% of all uh, auto loan borrowers are now paying more than $1,000 a month uh, in, in uh, uh, cost for vehicle financing. And uh, That's astounding. Isn't it? Uh, and, and that really impacts uh, sales. The, the strike uh, with the auto uh, workers limited supply, and supply still hadn't bounced back entirely from the pandemic shortages. So if you look at cars on dealer lots, uh, they, they've risen since the, the worst it, it was during, during the pandemic, but they're still not anywhere close to normal. So uh, that, all of those things have uh, dented revenues the state gets from the motor vehicle purchase and use tax. Uh, so, so both of those factors are contributing to that. Um, it, it, it bounces around a bit. It, it, it will, though, improve if interest rates do come down. Uh, sooner and farther than uh, people uh, had expected. I, I note that the, it does appear that some of the um, uh, interest rates for mortgages and uh, car loans uh, have come down some, but still have a ways to go. We are speaking with Tom Cavett, the state economist, and Chris from Williamstown has a question. Chris, what's your question for Tom Cavett? Just a comment. I did hear your previous caller in regards to owning an EV and tracking, so to speak. Um, in Vermont now, the state inspection stations have to take a picture of the odometer of all vehicles so you can tell. Okay. okay. Um, and uh, that does seem to be the way that um, uh, it's hard to imagine uh, any other way of, of keeping track of, a, of the mileage that is driven on an EV. And car, those cars still do uh, use the roads like all the other vehicles. So it does uh, seem to make sense. Um, uh, Chris, is that is that the extent of your comment? That, uh Okay. Um, yeah. No, I, I think that's I think that's right, uh, uh, Chris. Uh, the, you know, a lot of times there's an idea for a tax, but it's not easy to implement for whatever reason. And uh, so, vehicle inspections would be the way that that probably, if you did something like that, uh, you'd do it in in that vein. But just just on the point, uh, Brad, about the the uh, new car sales and. Uh, you know, things that are impacting uh, that the uh, uh, during the commercial break, the ad from the Ford dealer was emphasizing exactly what we were talking about. The, the you know, the cost of financing uh, and and inventory, you know, stressing that they do have some inventory and they're going to help with financing. Uh, but the other the other thing that has affected new and used car sales is that. The, the prices still haven't come down as much as a lot of other things that, that uh, uh, were elevated during the pandemic. So uh, in the report that, um, that we issued, we list some of the things that have increased most in price since February of 2020, which is the month before the pandemic hit. And uh, new and used motor vehicles are up almost 30 percent still uh, uh, relative to that pre-pandemic level. So that's also something that is 
uh, affecting sales uh, and um, is an element in, in that story. Ray from Barry has a question for Tom Cavett, the state economist. Ray, what's your question? Yeah, good morning. I was wondering how much of the purchases and use tax is transferred to the general fund and if any, okay, don't you think it's a bit in, uh, disingenuous to have this conversation without informing the uh, the listeners? Um, well, the, go ahead, Tom. That's okay. Uh, a portion of the uh, uh, purchase and use tax uh, uh, goes to the uh, education fund, not the general fund. So it's split between the transportation and education fund uh, we don't I mean we forecast what's happening at a level that combines the two what the state chooses to do with the money how they allocate it to one fund or another or to uh, uh, you know to other uh, uh, uses and and how they appropriate it is is uh, not part of our purview but uh, uh, it, that's a, that's a good point if you're thinking of the transportation fund carrying all of the load of, of uh, a transportation need and, and that revenue, yes, some of it is uh, uh, sent to other funds. Okay. Uh, Ray, thanks for your question. Uh, Tom, I did want to ask, uh, just in the last couple, minute or two we have left, um, uh, any surprises uh, in the report or in, in what you found to, to, to report? Uh, there weren't a lot of, of uh, big surprises. Uh, this whole thing with, you know, the, the state cash balances being so high has generated a phenomenal amount of interest income. Uh, it's thing to forecast because it's deployed with a lot of different kinds of interest-bearing uh, instruments. And so, you know, guessing the maturity dates and the, and the returns one by one, and then the, the rollover prices and things like that is really complicated. But uh, so that's new, and it's a it's a great deal of money, but it's going to be declining because there are spending terms on that that are really uh, 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 pretty rigid. The federal government requires that the money be spent down, and uh, so that uh, that's going to be shrinking. Uh, but that is a big source of revenue. Lottery revenues were pretty strong because there were uh, there, there was a, uh, a combination of really high jackpots that uh, uh, just happened to occur all in the first um, first half of the fiscal year. Uh, you know, there are always things like that though. In in a you know, that's why we true it up every six months. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Tom, I, I uh, before I guess we don't we're just about out of time. We don't have much else. Um, but uh, you you did mention a low number of foreign-born residents in Vermont compared to other states. What's just very quickly? What's the practical effect there? Well, it's interesting because there's a lot of hand wringing over our uh, slow-growing or in some years even declining. Uh, population and certainly the the uh, working age population, and uh, the Boston Fed recently did a study looking at employment growth and and shares of population uh, that are foreign born, and 
nationally, virtually all of the growth in in the in employment that's occurred since before the pandemic uh, has been an increase in foreign-born workers. So. Uh, I'm t- I, Tom, I'm so sorry. I have to cut you off because we got to go. This is WDEV.